Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, everybody. I'm Seth Busby, editor of Flying Solo. Welcome to our weekly podcast where we step inside the minds and lives of soloists and small business owners. Today's guest is Professor Elaine Fox. Elaine is one of the world's leading psychologists and performance coaches, and as a leading researcher in the area of resilience and mental well-being, she's recently released a book called Switchcraft, which shows you how to break out from rigid mindsets to restore your fulfillment, curiosity, and zest for life. If you'd like to learn to be more agile and positive in your thinking, then stay listening as Elaine is bound to have some great advice. Hi, Elaine. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Sess. Really lovely to be here. And thank you very much for having me on. Hi, you're most welcome. Now, I'd like to have a little bit of a chat with you about switchcraft. Now, you've spent years researching the factors that impact resilience and mental health. But with your new book, Switchcraft, you've kind of stepped out of the lab to deliver something that while it's still dives into the science, it's much more of a guide to help people break out of those kind of rigid mindsets that might be holding them back and restore their flexibility and curiosity. So what I'm wondering is, why was it time for you to put your all your research um, down on paper and write a book like this and, and bring that knowledge to, to everyone? Absolutely, Sess, you're right. The book is very much based on my own research over many, many years. And uh, I think there was a number of things um, what I had noticed over and over again in my own research is that uh, when we're looking at resilience, one of the factors that I just kept finding again and again was that those people who are very flexible or very agile and could figure out different ways of doing things, they were the ones who tended to be quite resilient. Um, and that was just coming up in lots of different areas of research. So I thought it was important to bring this to uh, the general public, because I think there's a lot of lessons we could learn. And I should point out that the um, idea is that in, in a world that's very changeable, as ours is, a world that's very unpredictable, we really need to be highly agile and, and flexible. And uh, I, I actually started the book way before any of us had heard of coronavirus. But as I was writing, <laughs> as, as I was writing, as you can imagine, when the world started shutting down, planes were grounded, we had lockdowns all over the world, it became more and more relevant. And, you know, I really realized that, yeah, there's a lot of really good signs here. And, and maybe if I can just explain a little bit about my own research, because I had a kind of a eureka moment, which I think kick-started me really to, to writing the book. So my own background is I've done a lot of work looking at um, people who worry a lot, so people who are worriers and are highly anxious. Um, and one of the things we know is that those people tend to have very negative biases in how they process the world around themselves. So, for example, they'll tend to interpret things in a very negative way. They'll tend to remember more negative information than more positive information. Um, and just generally notice threat and danger far more. And I had kind of fallen into the trap myself of, of thinking a bit rigidly and thinking that, you know, actually, that's the real marker of anxiety, a negative bias. But of course, then what I realized is that I did some work myself um, with people 
people who were uh, guides, bringing people out in outward bound type of adventures. So young disabled children. And of course, those teachers and those those guides had to be very alert to danger. And at the same time, a couple of colleagues of mine did some work with soldiers who were going into battle situations. And of course, they also have to have very negative biases. They have to look out for the, the worst and for danger. So what I realized was that in anxiety, it's not the negative bias that's the problem so much, but it's actually that that bias gets very rigid in anxious people. So for people who aren't so anxious, um, they can quite easily have a very strong negative bias in the appropriate situation. But actually, when they're in a safe environment, they don't have that bias anymore. They can then relax. Whereas the problem with anxiety is that somebody who has developed this very negative way of seeing the world even when they're in a very safe environment, um, they still have that negative bias. Um, so actually, I realized, and this was the eureka moment, that you know it wasn't the negative bias in itself that was the problem. It was actually the fact that that was a very rigid type of, of bias, and people couldn't switch out of it in even in a very safe environment. That's interesting, isn't it? Because like you think, you know, go back to the caveman or whatever, a negative bias might have been a good thing. You know, you know like Absolutely. Whoa, be careful there's ferocious animals about but but that would then also you'd harness that fear to protect yourself or to um run for your Absolutely. life or whatever <laughs> so it would not yeah. necessarily be negative <laughs> No, absolutely. And that's exactly what I kind of realized. And of course, there are certain situations where negative bias is really important. If, if you're lying in bed on your own late at night, for example, and you hear something, you think some a window is broken, you think, well, is that just a branch hitting against the window or is it actually a burglar getting into your house? And, and that's it's, it's really important to be vigilant in that situation. So um, so absolutely. And, and I kind of realized that I'd caught, I'd caught myself getting into this rigid way of thinking, uh, ironically, really, and, and thinking that it's all about the negative bias. But actually, I realized it's all about rigidity and flexibility. So, and then in other areas of my research, um, this idea of, of, of people being very flexible was coming up again and again with really resilient people I was working with. It was very obvious that they were highly agile and flexible. So um, I really thought, well, it would be just fun to write a book um, to kind of help people utilize this and discover ways to actually improve their agility so that actually we can deal more easily with a very um, unpredictable world. Because that's the point, I suppose, that if if the world didn't change very much, um, well, then we wouldn't need to be particularly flexible. But as we all know, even before coronavirus, um, the world isn't that predictable. You know, we can become ill, our friends can become ill, our children can become ill. Um, you know, lots of things can happen that we don't expect. So we really have to be very agile to deal with that type of uncertainty and that type of, of uncertain world. So can I ask them what about control? Because you mentioned things that are out of control, like people might get sick or, you know, environmental disasters or whatever, which are all out of our control. What kind of um, impact does our own um, notion of control then have on our ability to be resilient and flexible? Absolutely. It's really important. And and one of the things I talk about in, in Switchcraft is how we deal in those kind of situations, uh, particularly when we're in a kind of a crisis situation. And I think, again, all of us experienced this over the last couple of years with coronavirus, where it was really unclear what was going to happen. There was, a, you know, lots of things were going on, lots of lockdowns. And I think a lot of people try to... Um, 
cope with those kind of situations by actively trying to control them. And I think one of the real messages in the book is we simply can't do that. I mean, we kind of know that at some level, but we still slip into trying to control it because it's a natural, it's almost like a natural defense, I suppose. It's kind of, we, if we're in control, we feel we're more empowered, which of course is true. But for many situations, we just don't have that kind of control. So it's almost, um, you know, you have to go with the flow to some extent, at the risk of sounding a bit trivial. You know, it's it's like if you're surfing, you go with the wave, you don't try and fight against it. So the world is very changeable when things are a bit out of control. Um, you have to really, I think, first of all, ground yourself, really kind of try and calm yourself, look at the situation in a very calm way and figure out the best way of moving forward. And, and that's really the essence of, of switchcraft. Switchcraft is all about being agile, but not being agile just for the sake of it. We're not changing just for the sake of changing. We're changing um, in based on, on what we know about the world around us. So I've, in the book, I've outlined four different um, elements of switchcraft or pillars, if you like, of switchcraft. So one of those is agility, and that's probably the, be the most important. But that agility is supercharged by three other things, and they are um, self-awareness, emotional awareness, and situational awareness. So really being very aware of what's going around us, you know, what, how, how we can cope our own abilities and being aware of our emotions. Um, and all of that informs our ability to be agile. So does emotional awareness and emotional intelligence, do they go hand in hand? Yes, very, very much so. Um, so again, I, I, I have a couple of chapters in the book about emotions. And I think, again, just going back to control as well, that, you know, we know that a lot of people try to suppress negative emotions, for example, whereas negative emotions are there for a very good reason. Um, you know, they're there to, to indicate to us that something isn't quite right, that either we're in danger or, um, you know, there may be some problem that we need to deal with. So trying to suppress our negative emotions isn't a very good life strategy. So um, there's a lot of evidence that actually we need to em embrace embrace fear and embrace um, anger and all sorts of things. So and I think one of the big points of the book is that, you know, there is no one size fits all for every situation. That So nothing is really bad in and of itself, uh, but it's, when it's used in the right context, it can be really useful. And of course, if, if it's used in the wrong context, it can really work against us. Now, you have mentioned, you know, we've all been through this pretty challenging time because of coronavirus something like a one in once in a lifetime event something none of us will ever probably thought we would be living well, through but well, yet here we are well, let's, hope, let's, hope, let's hope it is a one in a lifetime event <laughs> uh, i like to keep the glass half full <laughs> absolutely absolutely i know <laughs> but um why is it then that some people can take on the stress and the difficulties and challenges of situations like this in their stride and then other people it's like, mm, not so much, it's really difficult for, for them yeah. to cope? Like, what, what are there different pathways that we need to be developing to be able to develop more resilience or...? Absolutely. I think there's different things we can do to improve our, our switchcraft, if you like, or improve our agility. Um, and you're right, there are real individual differences. Some people are just much better at dealing with uncertainty. And, and this is one of the um, things we found in research that uh, so people who are anxious and worry a lot tend to really not like uncertain situations um, and and you know often if if we if we are anxious like that we will tend to try and control situations and not really push ourselves out of our comfort zone at all um, 
so I think there are individual differences there, but I think a lot of uh, you know, what I say talk about in the book is that there are ways we can improve that. So I think all of us are on a spectrum and all of us don't like uncertainty to some extent, and that makes sense. We like to feel we are in control. We like to think that our world is fairly predictable. Um, so there are lots of things we can do to try and help us um, deal with uncertainty. I think the very first and the very simple start is simply to accept that the world is um is very changeable. You know, things are unpredictable. I think sometimes we get into this habit of thinking, oh, no, I can control everything. Whereas actually, we really can't when we think about it. Things will happen that are totally outside our control. Um, and for example, I know a lot of your listeners run small businesses. So, you know, running a small business, you know, there's endless things that can happen that are not within your control. And you have to find a way of coping with those. So in the book, I talk about a lot of things we can do to help improve our ability to deal with that kind of very unpredictable, changeable kind of world. Um, and as I said, part of that is simply accepting that actually change does happen and we have to deal with it. Um, and then just, you know, developing different ways of, of getting used to that. And, and a, a big part of it, actually, to be honest, is, is experience. So if we expose ourselves to the, the wider the range of experiences we expose ourselves to, the more likely we are to deal with these kind of very changeable situations because we, we may well have come across something similar in the past. So it's one of the interesting things about experience, I suppose, maybe one of the advantages of growing older that you kind of learn that actually a lot of things that at one point you might have thought, I could never deal with that situation. Actually, when you live through it, you realize, actually, I can, you know, I'm actually much more resilient than I thought. And, and again, assess that's one of the really interesting things in research that researchers have found that people are actually far more resilient than they think they are. So all of us think, oh, you know, I couldn't possibly deal with that situation. But actually, when we're faced with a crisis, we most of us tend to actually be really good at dealing with it. So you just then you, you talked about lived experience, but can that kind of flip both ways? Could you then suddenly wind up with the this kind of negative bias because you've got this memory of how things turned out before and so therefore you're like, oh, it's going to be like that again, oh no. Yes, absolutely. And and I think there's no doubt that if, if uh, for some people, if you're in a very stressful situation, that can obviously trigger anxiety and real psychological problems. So I think a lot of it is how we deal with those kind of situations and particularly how we deal with it afterwards. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, is self-awareness. And one of the ways we can kind of get access to our, ourselves really and get a deeper understanding of ourselves is by looking at some of our, our life narratives. Um, so, you know, how do we kind of interpret the things that have happened to us? Um, and what you find is that sometimes if people are in a situation and they interpret that in a particularly negative way or they feel that they were very powerless, that can become a quite a pervasive type of feeling and that can be quite a negative thing going into the future so i think you know there are psychological techniques um that that people can use to try and reinterpret that situation maybe look at it in a slightly different way you know um maybe change the question you're asking a little bit or 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 just really trying to you know to look at different perspectives on on what happened can i ask then is there if we're feeling anxious about a situation is there um some simple ways that we could, I don't know, like breathing techniques or <laughs> I don't know if it's even as simple as that. Are there some things that we can do that can kind of flick a switch for us to help us get out of that mindset? 
Absolutely, Sass. I mean, there's a number of things um, that that we can do. And one of the ones, as you said, is absolutely um, taking a step back, if you like, and grounding ourselves. So if you're in a, a kind of a crisis situation, obviously, you may have to react quite quickly, depending on the nature of the situation. But it's always worth just taking a slight step back and, and really looking and saying, okay, what can I do here? What's the most effective thing for me to do? And a very simple grounding technique is often is, is simply deep breathing. So just just even taking a couple of deep breaths can just ground yourself. It just gives you a little bit of space. Um, but things like, um, say, a body scan. I'm not sure if people are familiar with this, but it's, it's a mindfulness technique. It comes from the mindfulness tradition where um, you just literally get comfortable, take some deep breaths, relax yourself, um, and then you bring it, your attention to your feet, for example, and then you gradually move your attention around your body really paying attention to the different areas of the body that's obviously not something you would do in a crisis situation but if you're in a situation for example like you're worrying about whether you might lose your job or you know there's a, a market you're you might lose so it's a longer term thing that you need to deal with those kind of techniques can be really helpful and even if you spend just 10 minutes a day for example just doing that body scan technique um that could be really helpful. And what people have found is that, you know, I've worked with a number of people and including athletes, for example, elite athletes who, who often use these techniques. What they find is that if you use these techniques um, quite regularly, even when there isn't a crisis, actually, and just get used to doing it, when you are in a really difficult situation, it almost becomes second nature. You kind of think, OK, I'll step back. I'll take a few deep breaths, maybe do a little bit of body scanning if it's, if it's appropriate, if you don't have to react very quickly. Um, and that can really, that simple technique can really really help it's like a body sense memory kind of just kicks in and helps you glide past the crisis <laughs> absolutely exactly yeah and I think there's one of the things that in in the chapters I've written about self-awareness and um, there's a number of of ways we can develop a self-awareness and um, so one of the big ones which we often forget about is simply listening to our body I, I think in the modern world we've often become very disconnected from from our physical reality you know we inhabit a body and our body gives us lots of information about what's going on so you know our gut feelings for example um, and a lot of us never give ourselves a space and time to listen to that so often you know everywhere we go we have a phone bleeping or a computer bleeping uh, you know so simply sometimes just getting outdoors maybe turn off the phone just do a little bit of deep breathing a little bit of mindfulness just go for a walk you know outside and just kind of tune into your body a little bit all of those things um, are really important and can really help you in dealing with with your stressful situations that is interesting, you know, because you mentioned that gut feeling. And I think um, we've kind of got it so into our heads at times that we've forgotten how to trust our instincts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, that's something that, you know, I've, I've, I've written about in the book. So um, so intuition is a really important part of our own self-understanding. And, you know, a lot of people think that intuition is is very much about kind of magical thinking almost. It's something kind of magical and mysterious. Um, and but actually. Woo -woo. <laughs> exactly a bit woo woo yeah and it's um, and it can be and of course there's lots of books which are very woo woo about, about intuition but actually there's a lot of um really strong scientific evidence showing that actually a lot of our intuitive feelings come from um the brain um basically um, tapping into what we call big data so if you think of i'm not sure if you're familiar with that phrase big data but you know sometimes if if there's a lot of information you could put in a kind of a ma mathematical model which will pull out patterns that we couldn't possibly see with the naked eye so the brain actually does that with every 
single experience we've ever had. So right from the moment we're born, like every sight, every sound, every smell, the brain has recorded that in some way. And there's a memory in there of maybe a particular smell was linked with a particular emotional state, for example. Now, we can't possibly have access to all of that on a conscious way, but the brain has recorded all of that. It's all in there. It's this kind of big data. And and really what's happening is when we have these intuitive feelings, often what they are is it's the brain utilizing some previous memory that may have happened many, many years ago, for example, um, and that really helps us to, um, it guides our perception. And the interesting thing is, I don't, I don't want to go too much into the neuroscience of it, um, but the modern day findings have shown that actually it really is to do with gut feelings. There's a lot of, of cells within the gut, for example, that actually pick up a lot of these uh, this information from, from all around the body and link it up with memories um, of things that have happened. So those intuitions really are gut feelings. I mean, there's a reason why we call them gut feelings. Um, so I think tuning in, learning to tune into your intuition and really taking it more seriously is really important. It's not the only thing. And I think the other thing about intuition is it doesn't give you an answer of what is right or what's wrong. So like we need rational thinking for that to really solve a problem. You do need rational thinking. But what gut feeling does is it guides you in one direction or the other. So and I'm sure we've all been in that situation where you might think rationally, I definitely should do this, you know, but actually our gut feeling is just telling us, no, maybe not. Maybe actually we should in this situation, maybe we should do something slightly different. That's actually our brain's experience from, you know, millions of episodes we've had throughout our life, really telling us that actually you've been in something like this before and actually that that didn't quite work out. So, you know, so I think actually really tuning into our, our body and 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 listening to our intuitive feelings is really important. So next time we have a kind of somatic response to something don't squash it down, have a listen and <laughs> think about what's going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. No, I think Exactly. I, I think it's so important. And I think so many of us just ignore it. Um, you know, and in fact, I found that since I've been writing this book and, and reading up a lot of this type of literature, I've, I've started doing this myself a lot more. And it is amazing. It, it, it does really improve your whole kind of sense of well-being by, by just being much more aware of, of how your body is responding. And it's because it's giving you information about the, the world around you, really. Now, speaking of well-being, uh, I find, I'm not sure if that's the same for you, but there seems to be people who have an innately positive kind of happy attitude and that's how they approach life and then there's other people that are always looking glass half empty is it possible to cultivate optimism and to like nudge ourselves back to look at things from the bright side or should we not be even thinking that should we just be trying to be more realistic either way no, well, I, I actually, funnily enough, going back to my, my first book was a book called Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain, which is on exactly that topic, actually, looking at how do we nurture a more optimistic view. And, and I think, you know, the point I made is we need both sides. We need the rainy brain, if you like, as well as the more optimistic brain. Um, and I think to answer your question, yes, we definitely can nurture that. And one of the things I think is interesting is we often think of optimism just in terms of positive thinking. But actually, when you look at the research into optimism, it turns out there's a lot of different elements to it. So positive thinking is definitely one part of it. But it's actually positive actions is a really big part of it. Um, so actually doing things. So you find that a lot of people who are more optimistic will actually 
will actually do a lot more things that will help them to succeed, particularly in business, for example. So they're not just sitting thinking, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if this worked out? They will actually put things in place to try and make that happen. Um, and another um, thing that's a real component of optimism is actually just um, what you could call a kind of tenacity, I suppose. Um, and there's a lovely little experiment that I've always liked, um, which which uh, was conducted, I've just forgotten the woman's name who conducted actually, it was a study conducted in the US. Um, and But we've replicated it several times with, with our own students. And you basically divide people, you give people a questionnaire on optimism, and we divide people into those who are very highly optimistic and those who are much more pessimistic. And we give them a task of solving difficult anagrams. So, you know, six letters jumbled up that uh, that they have to come up with a, a word in English. And what we do is um, when they're about three or four in and getting used to this task, um, there's actually an impossible anagram. So there's actually no English words that they can come up with. And what's found over and over again is that the optimists always will take a little bit longer before they give up than the pessimists. Now, that's nothing to do with positive thinking. There's nothing to do with anything else. It's simply to do with this kind of like a tenacity, if you like, for want of a better word. Um, and it's really interesting. I, t I, tend to, I tend to do this a lot in my lab classes with psychology students. And it works, you know, 99% of the time, it, it works exactly in that way. So, so I think when we talk about optimism, it's, it's all of these kind of things are important in optimism. So if you want to become more optimistic, often it's about not so much working on your positive thoughts, but actually working on, on your positive actions and, um, you know, sticking with things for a lot longer um, than, than you might want. Um, so all of those things can definitely, uh, you know, improve your, your optimism. So when we're talking about positive actions from a, our small business audience kind of sense, how can we help them to, I don't know, train their brain to be, look for the positive in an opportunity uh, or the opportunity in a challenge and um how can they be more mentally agile because you spoke at the very beginning of this about the role of agility in terms of resilience exactly. as well exactly and and as i said agility is definitely linked to resilience um and and that can be very effective in in business and as i mentioned it's agility which is supercharged by these other three components so the kind of self-awareness the emotional awareness and the situational awareness so being very aware of, of the situation you're in is hugely important for your agility because if you don't know how the world is changing, you're, you're not going to be able to respond in an agile way. So I think in, in, in many situations um, in business or in other situations, people often don't really take a good hard look at what's going on around them um, and they can really miss out. So I'll give a, an, an example, actually. It's a famous example. I'm sure you've heard it before of Kodak who um, you know, famously were obviously world leaders in photography. Um, and way back, I can't remember the exact year, but one of their engineers actually um, discovered digital photography and actually invented digital photography. Um, and But the Kodak um, senior management looked at this and thought, oh, this could be very bad for our photography business. You know, we, we don't really want this. So um, obviously, to be fair to them, they couldn't have predicted the iPhone and all the rest of it. But actually, they put it in the file drawer. They basically said, no, we, we don't want to pursue this. And what actually happened was um, they ended up almost being bankrupt several years later, while much more agile companies, uh, particularly um, Asian companies like Fujitsu and other companies, 
actually saw the saw the saw the potential of digital and thought, wow, this is you know, there's a real potential here. And they really went with it and really developed it and enhanced it. So ironically, the whole digital revolution in photography bypassed Kodak, who not only were the biggest photography company at the time, but actually had invented it. You know, it was one of their own people that invented it, but they just uh, you know completely because they were kind of, I think, looking at the world in quite a rigid way. They weren't really looking at the changes that were going on. So so that's a little bit of a long-winded way of answering your question. I think that, you know, actually to be agile, you need to be very tuned in to your particular market, your particular situation and what's going on around you. And that will put you in a position, that kind of informed agility, if you like, puts you in that position where it's much easier to react quickly when, when something changes because you've already made yourself aware of the situation are there any kind of um tricks that you can do in terms of trying to create a more flexible mindset I think, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things. So again, I give, throughout the book, I give lots of different um, exercises and little things that people can can do. One of those is simply, um, and this is something that, you know, I think a lot of people quite enjoy is, um, say, if you have, a, say, an hour, an hour period is probably ideal. Um, and where you have, say, come up with three different tasks that you think each of them should take about maybe 10 to 15 minutes each. So you might have to draft out an email, you know, you might have to, um, you know, small, small tasks. You may just need to make a phone call and talk to somebody. So come up with three of those tasks that realistically shouldn't take you more than about 10 to 15 minutes and give yourself an hour to do those tasks. So the key is you give yourself 10 minutes to do the first one. When the 10 minutes is up, you stop that task, regardless of whether you finish finish it or not and then it's really important to give yourself a short break maybe a minute break before you move on to the next task um, and likewise you do that hopefully you finish it in the, in the given time if you haven't finished it you have to stop at the end of that 10 minute period again give yourself a short break um, and then move on and that's actually a very useful exercise and um I should have said that one of the things in, in psychology, um, what we call this kind of cognitive flexibility, so mental flexibility, is the ability to switch between tasks very rapidly. What is really crucial about that is giving yourself a gap in between tasks. Sometimes when we're all very busy, you know, you might do a task and then you'll straight away jump into the next task. Um, that's actually really inefficient. That's going to drain you of energy very, very rapidly. So what we know from this kind of task switching, as we call it, is you have to give yourself a little gap. Ideally, stand up, walk around, maybe do something totally different. Just give yourself a break and then move on to the uh, the second task. So that's a simple little exercise that, that people can do. Um, and a more kind of advanced version of the same thing is, again, you come up with different tasks, but you set a timer to just go off randomly. So every time the timer goes off, you have to shift tasks, which can be very frustrating. You might just be about to finish a, an email, for example. But if the buzzer goes, you have to move on to the next task, having had a break in the middle, of course, just a short break. So they're kind of very simple things that people can do just to improve their um, their cognitive flexibility, which is quite a low level process in the brain. Um, but that's actually, you know, a, a really simple way of just loosening your brain up, if you like. It's like, it's like a little um, workout for your brain. A little bit of gymnastics. Exactly. <laughs> um, so how do you feel about this kind of always-on environment that we're in these days then? 
Oh, absolutely. I think I think it's 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 a disaster um, for the for for our well being um, because I think again, just going back to some of the neuroscience. Uh, I mean, what the latest research is showing um, very clearly is that a lot of problems with our well-being is actually to do with energy depletion. Um, and this comes down to how the brain works, actually. So the, we know that the brain doesn't react to what happens in the world. The brain actually predicts what's likely to happen. And then we kind of analyze whether that happened or didn't happen. Now, that's a highly flexible system. It's actually a very useful system to have. But of course, it does uh, it does take up a lot of energy. So predicting takes up energy. And especially if those predictions aren't aren't very accurate, um, we will drain ourselves of energy very, very quickly. And this is why, you know, mental work can drain us of physical energy, which people often don't, don't really fully understand. And as I mentioned, I, I work with a lot of um, athletes, and and it's often it, it, it's often difficult to convince elite athletes that actually the mental work they're doing can be physically as draining as the physical work they're doing. And and I think once people realise that and begin to relax a bit more and and have a bit of self care, I think that can really have huge implications for your for your well being. Um, so yeah, I mean, being constantly on all the time is just impossible. We're not designed to be like that. We're going to drain ourselves of energy, um, and that's where people get into this very high stress situation. And that's precisely the situation where um, if something really bad does happen or you have a real crisis, you are much more likely to react very badly to that situation. If, if you are really overstressed and drained of energy. Whereas if, you're, if you've been looking after yourself a little bit better, keeping yourself fit, eating well, sleeping well, all the very basic things, um, that puts you in a position where you're much more likely to be able to cope with even really difficult situations and, and come through it in a much more resilient way. Mm. Business owners wear so many hats. I guess for them it is a constant juggle, for especially if you're in a small business. So... Absolutely. It absolutely is. And I think that's where, you know, I talk to when I, I talk to people in, in business, I think even though it might be difficult, just scheduling in a little bit of time just for yourself, even if it's only 10 minutes, just to ideally get outside, have a little walk around the block, you know, whatever it is, just actually schedule that into your day rather than just jumping from one thing to the other. And and that really will have a, a huge benefit in the future because it just it's it puts you in a much better position to deal with a very heavy workload. Well, I'm going to schedule in some me time for me in a very short minute. <laughs> so, good, good. That's good to hear. <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with me today, Elaine. It's been super illuminating and I'm really looking forward to reading your whole book. I've only had a little excerpt of it so far. Um, and when is it out? Let's give it a plug. It's coming out on the 12th of May in Australia and in the UK. Um, so 12th of May, it'll be out, but it is available to pre-order now. And um, I really hope you enjoy it and I hope, hope your listeners enjoy reading Switchcraft. Thank you so much, Elaine. Bye-bye. Thanks very much, Seth. Bye-bye.